0: Hello and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, with me, Jude Monk McGowan. My guest today is Dr. Rory Cowlum, better known as TV's Rory the Vet. Rory knew he wanted to be a vet from the age of four. It was the advent of his first dog, Lulu, to the family, which was the seminal event in Rory's young life. He describes his relationship as uh, a kindred spirit. It was after Lulu's first visit to the vet with Dr. Benson, that after watching on in awe, he proudly pronounced to his family that he too would become a vet. By the age of 22, having studied at the Royal Veterinary School, he joined the 24 hour veterinary hospital, then a London practice called the Neighbourhood Vet in East Dulwich, London. In 2017, Rory landed a leading role in the pets factor for CBBC. He has guest spots on Blue Peter, BBC Breakfast, Lorraine, and the Saturday morning mashup. Last year, in 2020, he published his book, The Secret Life of a Vet. As always, this is a podcast to support the brilliant work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of children and adults with dyslexia so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. Everything is free at the point of use. Rory's approachability, his passion and his emotional availability are so evident in this episode. We go here, there and everywhere with the conversation. We go dark, we go light. It's beautiful. I'm really proud of this episode. I'm very excited to share it with you. Here it goes. Rory, hello. Welcome.
1: Hello, Jude. How are you?
0: Do you know what? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm excited about this one. Um, how, how are things?
1: Yeah, I'm excited too. Um... I, I suppose we've got to start by thanking you for inviting me on. Um, uh, yeah, it's you know life's weird at the moment, isn't it? But uh, coping and and surviving and staying sane. But yeah, yeah, not too bad.
0: Good, good. Where do you hail from, sir? Where in the world are you from?
1: Originally, the southwest of uh, our beautiful country, so down towards the Cotswolds. Um, and I am now, and have been for the last ten years, up towards your ends in uh, in South London. So uh, I am I'm currently in Battersea, um, and now, uh, yeah, I work in South London as well, so lovely love part that. of the world.
0: I love that. The uh, vet lives near Battersea uh, dog's home. It's There's, there's uh, something something neat about that. <laughs> um, I want to crack on with, you know, a really heavy-hitting subject, which is uh, Lulu, your first dog.
1: Oh, blimey, you are going in with the big guns. Um, I've actually got a, I'm, I'm sat in my office, and I've got a photo of her sat on my desk. Uh, <laughs> From wow. but, but like an old school photo but when when we didn't have digital cameras and it was just print, printed in Jessup's. Um, yes, the best, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, yeah, Lulu was Lulu was a special dog, she, she was my first ever dog. Got her when I was three, four years old, and she is to thank for my love of animals and my career.
0: Huge. Well, I mean, that's um, I mean, that's that's a massive thing to say, to say. Can we unpack that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, so she she basically inspired a lifelong love for animals. She became my obsession when I was I was that age, um, and really, I, I always used to call her my my four legged sister. Really, she she just followed me around. We were we were best of mates. Um, I do have a real sister who, if she does listen to this, she'll be throwing things. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh but uh Lulu Lulu was really, really yeah, the best thing that happened to me at that age. And and then from there, we had dogs all my life then and and particularly Great Danes, and Great Danes are are for anyone that doesn't know, massive and wonderful yes. and soft and soppy and just amazing dogs. And we've had Great Danes all my life since. Um the the big downside to them is they don't live long enough. So have got a lifespan of somewhere around eight to 10 years. And, um, and unfortunately, that means the the good times are great, but they are short-lived. So, yeah, we lost Lulu actually when I was in secondary school. But she by that point, she had really set me on my path towards becoming a vet and uh, and and trying to help as many animals as possible.
0: Well, there's immediately, for me, there's the duality that's thrown up there is is this intense love um, and well of emotion that you have for a, a dog like that, uh, which you know they're obviously so easy with kids and you form a very easy connection with them because they're so soppy and then you the flip side of that of course is that they they die and already you have their um the inherent challenge of of being a vet I would assume is is loving this animal you know uh in a in a very unique way and then having to say goodbye to it
1: uh, absolutely
0: you talk about that in your book your your wonderful book which came out last last year is um is falling in love with being a vet and animals and then the the reality which is is death almost every day
1: yeah absolutely to to quote my favorite film it's the circle of life um and and i think (laughs) (laughs) and i think it's it's something that you you, i I always i always got really involved with animals when i was a kid and, and something i think a lot of people come to me with their kids and their animals and they, and they struggle to find that balance between letting the kids get involved and understand when an animal is unwell or sick or dying and trying to shield them from that and protect them from that. And I think there's no right answer to it for any parents listening. It's it's just you, you've you got to work out what's best for your kid. And I, I always, always, always was exposed to it. I remember losing my first animal really, really young, um, a cat called topsy and then a cat called creamy um and it was heartbreaking but it did really teach me the circle of life but equally then I lived in and around farmland and of course that that exposes you to that sort of thing anyway so um I think I think it's an important lesson for kids to learn particularly
0: absolutely I would I would certainly agree and it is it's it's difficult I I would assume you have to go on a case-by-case basis with with each with each child but it does feel to me a, a, an incredibly value, valuable lesson because it makes you appreciate life more, surely, if you know how um, fragile and how impermanent it is.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, it really does. And it makes you really save every moment, particularly, as I said, Great Danes have such a short lifespan. Um, it really does make you enjoy every single minute that you've got with them, um, particularly when we're talking about pets, unless you've got something like a Galapagos tortoise, which is going to outlive you. But I think they're pretty few and far between. <laughs>
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, not exactly as exciting as uh, a Great Dane for a household <laughs> pet. As as beautiful as they are, you know, they are they they are stunning as well. But you know, they they don't have uh, as much character.
1: Absolutely, and they don't quite move as quickly or do as much. I think is, is, hasn't one just had his two hundred fortieth birthday
0: or something? I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I saw that there was. Is it eighteen sixty five or something? Yeah, crazy. Like hard. amazing. Can we talk about the extremes of emotion? I mean, we're we're on that path anyway. Um, yeah. Talking about uh, death, but um, you talk about this a lot. You've talked about it in articles and in your book about um, how you can, you know, have a family weeping in your surgery saying goodbye to a, uh, a family pet, and then and then a kitten walks in, and and you've yeah. got to treat that.
1: Yeah, it's it's a tough one, really. I mean, uh, so I, I always talk about this in relation to. What I term the veterinary profession's dirty little secret, and that really is the mental health crisis within the profession. We are seeing incredibly high rates of depression, suicide, burnout, all sorts. And, and um, just to throw the most concerning and harrowing statistic at you, it's as a, as a vet, as a male vet, I'm four times more likely to commit suicide than, than the average uh, average Brit. Um, wow. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Um, and that's that's something that we've known in the veteran profession for a while. And we try, and, and there's amazing uh, charities and, and 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 people trying to help address it. And I'm I'm trying to do my small small part by talking about it because I think that's often the first step, right? Um, Absolutely. But I often reference uh, the, the extremes of, of emotion as the thing that I I struggled with the most as a young vet because you are it's just a given and it's expected of you that you can just bounce to and fro between these emotions all day, every day, working extreme hours under extreme pressure and not crack. And, and it's just not doable. Um, and as you very rightly point out, you can spend 15, 20 minutes with a family that you've known for ages that you're you're sharing in their grief. You are borderline tearing up with them, but trying to stay professional, trying to hold it in and, and be their rock. You walk out of that room and then you walk into the next room and you've got a family with a kid who's super excited that they've got a brand new puppy. Mm. And you've got to be all happy, jolly, light and airy and, and, and fun. Yeah. And then you could be going right back to that same situation again and again and, and sort of going between them all day. And and that, I mean, yeah, that's it's it's a lot.
0: Absolutely it is. We were uh, fortunate enough to talk to a doctor a couple of weeks ago called Jonas. And I asked him, you know, were you provided with any form of help while studying as a doctor to prepare you for for those extremes of emotion? And his answer was absolutely not. There was there was nothing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the same same with veterinary. You you don't, you don't even get told about it. You don't get warned about it. It's just <laughs> here you go. Here's your vet license. Go and uh, try not to break yourself.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing I I don't know if this resonates with you, but I, I certainly find. Um, the strong people in my life—they have their own stuff sorted out, right? They have—they have a degree of understanding of of what it means to look after themselves in terms of their mental well-being, and of, often their physical. Those two are are interlinked, and people gravitate towards them because they have a degree of strength, um, uh, because they have more to give, because they've looked after themselves. They they have more to help other people, and and I should assume, of course, um, as a vet, you've you've worked on 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 yourself. You you um you've gone through veterinary school. Um, I know you're a cyclist, so you're looking after your, your physical and mental well-being.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And, and you have to do that in order to be able to give as much because you, 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 as you say, you're sort of this emotional sponge that's um, taking in people's grief and uh, their joy. What is it that you do? I mean, what pros, I'm assuming you, because you didn't get any help from veterinary school about your mental well-being, how is it that you keep yourself topped up in terms of your mental health?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think you've got to learn about yourself, haven't you? And that's the thing. I think we're all learning all the time about how we react to certain things and how we deal with certain certain situations. Um, I, I going, going back to your point about being able to help people, I mean, I'm in a profession where I am there to help people and animals. Um, and so one of my really good friends... Is, is is one for memes and, and and instagram uh things like that so uh she sent me one the other day that really resonated with me was you can't pour from an empty glass and i think that sums it up i mean if you don't look after yourself and you don't replenish your own mental health and, and happiness and, and and ability to help then you're not going to be able to help others you're not going to be able to dish that out um so and that, and that took me ages to understand and ages to work out. I, I was always, and this, oh god, I sound I sound awful here. I, I I was always trying to help too many people, and that sounds really gross and horrible and sickening. Um, I'm, I'm, but that's that's essentially what I was trying to do. Is is in is in work. I was just trying to give my everything and give my all to help. Um, and then I ended up drinking too much, not looking after myself, not exercising, in a bit of a hole at one point. Um, and I talk about this in the book. Um, and I think only by doing that and seeing that process, did I learn what was really important to me? And you you said cycling is something that I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely passionate about and it is, I'm, I'm hugely into fitness. I know you're, you're really into your fitness and, and that is always my first sign. And I think that's, that's what I've, I've learned to, to recognize in myself is when things aren't quite right, they do fly under the radar and often I don't see them. But the thing I always see is when did I last do exercise? If it's been more than three, two or three days, then there's, some, there's probably something wrong, um, or there's yeah. probably something that's playing on my mind, and that's always yeah. the first thing to go.
0: Completely. Well, there's there was an article I read of yours where you essentially describe you you couldn't do you know right for doing wrong. Um, you uh, were adopting two animals to save them from being uh, euthanized um, and um, it just got messy with people uh, accusing you of. Um, uh, you know, needless procedures, um, you know, that became expensive and, and you were genuinely just trying to do the right thing. And it feels like there was a number of lessons in there for you, you know, about um, it, not only the, the animals themselves, but, you know, people and navigating people within um, being a vet. How How have you learned from that?
1: That's the hardest part of my job. Um, people think you go into veterinary to help animals. And if it was that simple, God, it would be so much easier. Um, but each animal comes with an owner. Um, and, uh, and owners are wonderful people. They are generally animal lovers. They are trying to do everything that's right for their pet, mostly. Um, but they bring with them baggage. They bring with them an opinion. They bring with them Dr. Google. They bring with them... <laughs> They bring them with them all sorts and and you've got to unpack that and you've got to you've got to well this is something i had to learn how to do is is, is sort of they might be coming into saying oh i've got a, my dog's limping or my dog's sore but there might be something underneath that that is an anxiety of theirs that they're trying to get help with or seek help with and if you don't address that early on and you and you miss those things and miss those signals from owners sometimes you can get yourself in real trouble because actually you do go down the line of, of of trying to do everything that's right for the pet, but that might not be what's everything that's right for the owner. And you've got to find that balance as a vet.
0: That's so interesting that you you almost have to become a sort of uh, psychologist where you're analysing why is this person has brought in this animal uh, and it's not just about the health of the animal.
1: Absolutely. And and I there's there's loads of, within the veterinary circles, there's loads of uh, sort of sayings and, uh, and, and, and funny things that are thrown around, but... As vets, we are not just vets, we are therapists, we're psychologists, we're an emotional crutch, we're dentists, we're medicine specialists, we are anesthesiologists, we're, we're all all these things. Um, we're yeah. your best friend, we're someone to confide in. Um, and there's a, there was a really interesting article in, the, I think it was the Telegraph a couple of years ago, that um, they did a, a survey of a, a few thousand people and they asked, okay, what professions would you trust most? And vets came out on top. So, you, despite wow. there being a, a little bit of a breakdown, I, th- I personally feel a little bit of a mistrust in in, in, in vets in certain instances. Mm. If you had to conf- the, the question, I think the way it was phrased was, if you had to confide in someone, who would you trust? And, I, and, and vets, doctors, and dentists were all very much the top, but vets came out at the top there. And and that, that I think that tells you everything.
0: Completely. I mean, it's just occurred to me now, and forgive me uh, for that, but. Um... It, it's, it feels just as challenging as, as being a, a doctor. Um, not only because of the stresses and strains and, and the very various things that you have to be on top of, but it's, <laughs> I don't know whether this is something that you believe, but I, I certainly feel for lots of British people, they care more about their pets than other people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, absolutely.
0: Uh, they, you know, because big pets become part of the family. I and I've I've spoken to friends who are not from from Britain. Europeans think we're quite eccentric for that. You know, th- th- there's no way that a a dog would be considered, um, you know, as part of the, a family as as they are in Britain, which often leads. And and you've you've written about this to uh, men who would probably never uh, show any form of emotion um, anywhere else do when you know a dog has to be put down or a cat has to be put down, which which. Um, it means as you say like the sheer level of emotional baggage that comes into your surgery is is huge
1: yeah absolutely and I think I've, I've got to start by saying at the moment doctors are are obviously way harder and working way harder than we are they are incredible and a huge shout oh, yeah, out to all course. the NHS staff they're amazing yes. but yeah absolutely I mean the, the 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 veterinary part of it is it's essentially we're, we're doing we're doing similar work and the thing is our patients can't tell us what what they're thinking um Mm-hmm. But yeah going to the point about about the emotional baggage absolutely the, the there's, I think there's nothing there's nothing that quite chokes you as as much as seeing a big 100, 110, 120 hench six foot <laughs> six fella break down yeah. over over his his cat that you put to sleep and that is I, mean, I think that that shows you the power of bonds with animals and absolutely I I think you say that Europeans think we're crazy for it but I I love it and that's I think that some one of the things that makes us British is the fact that we are mm. such animal lovers we have such yeah. a we've indoctrinated animal love into our society and our families and yeah it's it's one it's one of the things that makes us British and it's one of the things I absolutely love about this country and it's also probably one of the reasons I can do such a good job in my career because people are willing to do these amazing things and put their animals under these amazing surgeries to help help them and and, and and pay for their care because actually it picked me up and put me somewhere where they don't love animals quite as much and unfortunately things like animal welfare start to come, come crop up um one yeah. of issues start to crop up um, you don't have things like the rspca and char- other charities that help animals as much and, and you don't get people really looking after their pets as well so yeah i, I count myself very lucky that we're in britain yes
0: absolutely Let's talk. Let's talk dyslexia. I mean, after all, that is that is sort of why we're here. But I mean, I've, I've loved everything <laughs> else we've talked about. Um, so the challenges of being a dyslexic, going through uh, veterinary school, uh, I'm sure. I mean, given the you know the amount of Latin that you might have to uh, be, uh, you know familiarise yourself with, and and obviously the procedures, and as you say, dentistry. Uh, how was that for you?
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. It's something I I have thought about over the years. And I, I, I should start by saying I wasn't actually diagnosed until I was at university. Um, so I was always suspicious and my mum, my oh bless her, my long suffering mother. She, she was, was pretty convinced that I was dyslexic from age of 12, 13, maybe. I, I got to uni with some difficulty. I eventually got the grades I needed and, and, and managed to get there and then first year at university my we had a a counsellor at uni for dyslexia she signed me up for the test sent me for the test and absolutely I was I was yeah confirmed as dyslexic with I think that what the thing that really helped me with the diagnosis to start with was the fact that it identified where my weaknesses were and identified where my strengths were so I immediately knew that okay I'm going to struggle in exams here because my reading speed is absolutely terrible and I often make mistakes when I'm reading. So I have to really pay attention to what I'm reading. I have to go through and highlight the questions, highlight particular keywords. I'd often miss, you know when they throw sort of in assessments they throw in like double negatives or knots and uh, to try and throw you off a little bit sort of like which question is not right or which, sorry, which answer is not right. I'd often read that as which question is, which answer is right. And then I would obviously fail it. So those sorts of things used to catch me out a lot in assessments. And for me, that was my biggest, biggest challenge was getting through the assessments because in reality, the actual part, the actual being a vet, the the hands-on stuff, the empathy, the the learning, the, 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 the diagnoses, that comes to me quite naturally um, and actually, the surgical aspect and the and the, the procedural aspect, I am lucky that I don't have a dyspraxic tendency. I, I don't have uh, sort of any physical um, symptoms or, or manifestations of my dyslexia. So I actually yeah. find that quite it, it calms me and it quite it hones my abilities and it very much plays to my strengths. Um, so yeah, it's been really interesting to learn about dyslexia and how it has actually helped me in certain ways but also I've had to tailor my approach to things through my my university career and now my career to, to really play to those strengths.
0: Yeah, well, let's let's get inside that. So how was it you approached your exams, given you knew that reading time was going to be an issue?
1: So, I mean, first and foremost, I was lucky enough to be getting extra time. Um, and I think mm. anyone that gets offered extra time, you should absolutely take it. I mean, it's there for the taking. Don't If you don't use it, you don't use it. But please just use it please just take it and then you've got the option Extra time was a a bit of a gift for me particularly in long answer questions essays all those sorts of things and less so in multiple choice because in multiple choice i could fire through um but particularly when i was addressing yeah say for example an essay question going through highlighting highlighting the the words and actually writing the question down myself i found really helped because for me that process of reading and regurgitating onto a page that was my most effective revision technique that was my most effective uh sort of yeah learning technique and so I took that into the exam and would read the question write it down on a separate piece of paper next to me and only by that point did I then fully understand the question and could go and answer it
0: mm. yeah there's there's something about taking ownership of it almost you know writing a question in your own in your own writing and you and it. I mean, I find, for me personally, repetition to be my friend. So, you know, I'd write everything out, handwritten, um, in my answers. I, I, I didn't find the use of a computer that um, useful for me. But I agree. I would, in, I would encourage everybody, as you say, to take the time because not only are you you're going to be stressed, um, you're of course your adrenaline will be pumping, so you you you'll you'll want to go quicker anyway. And if you just take that time to just censor yourself, write the question out. As you say, I think that's a brilliant uh, technique. Uh, You'll you give yourself a much better chance, you know, to not miss anything.
1: Yeah, I really agree with that. And, and I, I, I agree on the computer front. They offered me a computer. I did one exam on it and then suddenly didn't want it um, because I actually found that's... And, and, and we talk a lot in dyslexia about eye stress and ocular stress, um, mm. or at least that was talked about a lot with me when I was particularly going through my diagnosis. And... I found that computers actually worsened that for me. They scrambled me. They, they. I found I had to read sentences multiple times and, and actually mm. paper, actually having the paper in front of me, being able to use a pen and, and a highlight and circle and underline for me was a better way of, of approaching it. Um, but also then I think we've got to talk about colored paper and, mm. and, and color yes. filters uh, because I don't know whether you had experience with these, but, I was given, um, I think it was a red green filter. I can't actually remember for the life of me, but, uh, they printed my exam exam paper on, on, on slightly tinted paper. They gave me a red green filter and it they also made it bold for me, which really helped again with the clarification of what they were asking, rereading the question, really being able to see that in my mind.
0: Absolutely. We had, um, a guy called Ross Lynette on a couple of weeks ago, who he has designed a toolbar, which uh, means you can essentially change any web page to any background colour you like, any text. Um, you can have the whole thing read back to you um, for those people, who, of course, uh, whose dyslexia really works with computers. And he was saying something really fascinating, which is even if you're not dyslexic, even if you don't have some form of word blindness. um, there is a color, an optimal color for you for the background and the text, which will help you read up to 25% more efficiently.
1: Wow. That's amazing. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that, definitely, that definitely resonates with me. Um, I, I definitely have that. And I, I've used, I've used certain softwares in the past. I've used sort of speaking softwares as well and and, and, and color filters and things like that. Um, but I think you, this is, I think that what it comes back to is you've got to try you. If you are in a position where you are either early diagnosis or you are struggling with your dyslexia, try all the options. Anything that's offered to you, give it a go and give it a real go. Don't just brush it under the carpet. Don't get a, get a piece of equipment and just put it in a drawer. Give it a go. Try dictating. Try colour filters. Try all these different things. Try bold. Try italic. Try different things to help you and and, and give it a good shot. And uh, only by trying those things will you work out what's, what's actually going to happen.
0: Absolutely. I don't know if this is the same for you, but I, the, having the physical thing in front of me, the piece of paper with pens and highlighters, there's, there's a, a a physical thing that's happening. You know, I I found sometimes my mind could feel quite divorced from my body when I was reading things. And certainly in a stressful situation, um, that felt the same way. You know, I had to reread and reread and the physical act of writing something out really helped me digest it and, uh, try to articulate the answer
1: yeah absolutely and and something that i do as well uh, and i do to this day and i don't i didn't really realize i did it but i often tap a beat out either with a finger or a foot or a foot um particularly in exams i used to do that when i was reading questions i would just tap on the desk gently um almost rhythmic and i used to find that as well helped me feel more connected to it because there was a physical aspect to it it would help calm me down in an exam setting as well. And I do it still in, in surgical settings. So if I'm in a big surgery, I'll often, you'll often find I'll, I'll be tapping my foot just to try and connect me a little bit. It, it's a, I, I can't explain it, but it, it's, a, it's a weird thing.
0: That's that's wonderful. I mean, that leads on to my next question, which is then how, how does dyslexia come up uh, in your practice?
1: So you mentioned Latin names and that sort of thing. I, I mean, I it's, it's a weird one I think you whenever you're dealing with a medical professional you you get you get a, an interesting range of people you get people who are super super book smart super super um, hyper intelligent and can reel off the thesaurus of, of, of 17 different medical procedures tell you everything about them give you all of their anatomy and all their physiology and use all the the latin as you say I'm not that guy i i struggle with that part of my career and i used to really it used to really worry me um particularly at uni because they they, uh, they obviously test you on those things but the thing i realized when well probably a year or two into being a vet you don't need to know it really it's a bit like yeah. the driving test you learn to drive and then you learn to drive it's yes it's, an, it's exactly the same in any job um and, and and whether you are in marketing, whether you are a personal trainer, whether you are uh, a vet, whether you're an, uh, an architect, you will have learned things in your training and you would have been trained in things. But just because that's how you're trained does not mean that's how you have to do it. And I think something that I had to realize was you you get your own creative license just because that's how they say you need to do it, it does not mean you that's how you need to do it. Give it a go. Do it how you want to. Do it how you have f- feel is the best way and that's exactly how I've approached my at least my, my last few years of being a vet um because I felt confident enough to do that and and so I don't I couldn't tell you every ligament that sits within the K nine knee but I can tell you how to fix it and I can and do it but yeah and, and, and I think that's where you've got to realize that you've got to play to your strengths you I, I could sit for hours every night and I could read anatomy books and I could probably get there to a point but I don't want to do that's a waste of my time and I'm not going to be happy with that I know I, I can do the job to the best of my ability without knowing those bits and and that for me that uh, my my the way my dyslexia has affected my career is actually it's meant that I can relax and I can just avoid that and it does mean that I approach it probably in a different way to a lot of other vets um but I do it in my own way
0: it comes back to ownership it comes uh, back to the ownership of of your dyslexia, your diagnosis, but also whichever field you go into. I mean, certainly as an actor, um, I was exposed to so many different techniques at drama school, uh, and you just you have to do what works for you, and 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 you have to listen to yourself. You know, as you say, give it a go. You know, be it an exam situation or really um, uh, put your effort into it. But you you have to really listen to yourself at the end of the day, because you know you're, you're ultimately you're with yourself until the day you die. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to make friends with it. And uh, one hopes with this podcast, this, this is also about helping people accept um, their dyslexia and actually taking uh, a degree of power from it. Because uh, unfortunately, there's there's lots of instances, certainly with the charity, the Dyslexia Foundation, where people have come in and, and there's a relief when they are told they're dyslexic because they, they, they're worried that they're just stupid. You know, they're, they're worried that they're not going to be told dyslexic. That are actually, I don't know, you, you, what you were told from your schooling is true. You're actually, you're actually stupid. So whatever it is, your dyslexia or your profession, it, there, there's uh, an ownership that you need to take.
1: Absolutely. And and that is something that I would shout from the rooftops. I mean, I, I through school, I knew I was different. I learned differently. I struggled in some classes and, and I couldn't understand why I was so slow. I couldn't understand why I couldn't do English. Honestly, that was that was my biggest crux as a kid, and I hated it. I used to act out in English. I used to become disruptive. Um, mm. I had teachers tell my parents that I was ADHD. I had I I, I had all sorts of things, and and I was I was labelled naughty and, and disruptive and irritating and all sorts, and and then you get you, you sort of for years and years and years you sort of question question yourself and kick yourself and work and you don't understand why it's happening and why you're being like that and and often, and often it was just frustration because I was just I was pissed off I was I, I didn't understand why I could sit in maths and I could be doing mental arithmetic quicker than 80% of the class but then I'd go to English and I would be the slowest by far in the in the in the whole year and it it frustrated me and and i think that's something that that a lot of dyslexics will will relate to and and be and have their own experiences in and then you get your get your diagnosis and suddenly you go oh thank god that's that's the best news ever (laughs) and i think people think people think about dyslexia as as a negative and think of it as a as oh god poor you you're dyslexic no absolutely not thank god i'm dyslexic that it makes sense i understand myself and i and and I think getting getting yourself labelled as dyslexic, don't see it as a negative. Don't don't see it as a as a you're thick or you're stupid. It, it means you're different, and it means that you don't conform to how society teaches. And I think it it almost excuses you, and it doesn't excuse you because please do stay in school, kids. You need to work hard. But um, <laughs> yes. uh, it it sort of excuses how you look back and you see yourself not maybe not quite thrive or not quite do as well as you should. Like I say, I, I was disruptive. So I, I think there's there's positives that come from diagnosis, and that's a, that's really key. And then going forward from your diagnosis, it allows you to learn yourself, as we were speaking about. It allows to, allows you to learn how your brain works. Everyone's different, and even if you're not dyslexic, everyone's different. No, not everyone learns in the same way. Not every dog that comes in limping dog that comes into my clinic needs the same treatment. Um, and I think that's that's something that you only can really think about and, 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 and master with time and learning and and sort of studying yourself.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that speaks to part of, of, of what is uh, a problem, I, I believe, with our schooling at the moment, which is, you know, what is education for? Is it about passing exams or is it helping you to become the best version of yourself that you can be, you know, encouraging a level of self-discovery? And unfortunately, it doesn't, at the moment allow for that because of course it's it's a system of education that was dreamed up in the industrial revolution so people in factories could you know be educated. Um, but it's it's so key. It's apps. it's so key to I mean certainly your your development, it was clear that as as a lot of dyslexics, you have emotional intelligence. And without it, you know, you wouldn't be the vet that you are today. So it it, it you know it does come with with blessings as well. You know, it's it's not something as you say that that people should be like uh, uh, pity you for. Not at all. It, uh, there's a great deal of your strengths as a vet is how approachable you are and and how uh, the emotional intelligence that you bring to it.
1: Absolutely, and that's the thing, isn't it? You you you, you each each dyslexic is different. Each person's different. I agree with you about schools. I mean, in a perfect world, every every kid would get assessed and put in a school that was tailored towards their learning but I mean we can dream right um and I think uh, you've got to when you're a kid it's so hard to see isn't it it's so hard to understand that 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 you're all different you're all going to respond to different things in different ways but um yeah I think some sort of reform needs to happen and, and and particularly for me I'm very lucky that I had a hugely I had a great support network, and I had a great, um, I had I had enough drive and enough enough help to get through my really difficult points, which was essentially my GCSEs and A levels, Um, and I was then lucky enough to start then thriving. And only once then I I got my diagnosis to learn about myself. Once I was at Union,
0: absolutely. I think we should uh, take this opportunity now to shout out the people who um, help dyslexic people dyslexic young people um I th- there was a stat I think that the um uh, the, the charity that you're an ambassador for the British dyslexia um yeah. association uh brought yeah. out quite recently that uh, parents often spend up to a grand in support a year to support their children and it's sh- it throws up that you know I I'm I am i am certainly fortunate and and, and it sounds like you were as well to have a a support network but there are lots of children who are never diagnosed and who um, never received the support that they should. And it should be said that most homeless people uh, have some form of neurodivergency or, or are dyslexic. Um, and it's that's uh,
1: interesting.
0: Yeah. Is, is, is that a coincidence? That. I don't know
1: well exactly, yeah that's that's really interesting i wasn't aware of it. i do i do quite a lot of work with a charity called street vet um who are who provide homeless care for oh, sorry veterinary care for, for homeless and their dogs and that's I, i've always thought they they are I've, I've spoken to a lot of homeless people and they are some of the most amazing people some of the most incredible emotionally intelligent and often overly emotionally intelligent people out there and i think that that's really interesting that you say that a lot of them have neurodiversity. I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that. That could tie up.
0: Yes, yeah. I mean, there's and and you got a sense of it as well. And I remember having it in reverse. You know, maths was ah oh, just a misery for me, and I I adored English so much um, that it's quite common for, for dudes. Um, at school to act out when they feel like uh, things are passing them by, when they feel uncomfortable, you know, they, they'll become the class clown and they'll distract and they'll, they'll be naughty. Um, it, you know, it feels like we may have lost lots of people because uh, of the form of intelligence that we focus on in schools being, you know, one certain set, which is, you know, sit down, listen, repeat, maybe talk to a partner. Uh, that because we haven't slightly adapted things to cater for people whose intelligences manifest in a different way, or neurodiversity, which dyslexia is considered by the way um, a, a form of blindness. So you're part of the blind community as well as uh, the dyslexia community, by the way. Um, Interesting. Th- th- that that um, that more people could you know uh, could have found the professions that they should have gone into. You know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think the the point to make there as well is. A good teacher that recognises this in her pupils or his pupils is worth their weight in gold because I had, I, I will never forget her. I had a, a teacher when I was very young. I can't have been more than nine or 10. Mrs. Pruitt, big shout out to Mrs. Pruitt. She, she was our English teacher at my primary school and she was probably the only teacher that ever said to my mother and my father, I think Rory is different. I think Rory is possibly dyslexic or dyspraxic or got something. And she she didn't have specifics. but And and we're talking probably 1998, 1999, something like that. So early in sort of dyslexia era. Um, But she highlighted it. And I was super young. And she started my parents down that path. And I think if she hadn't mentioned it, and or she'd been one of the teachers that, that sort of labels you a, a, a disruptive pupil and puts you into tension and, 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 and removes you from the learning because of the way you're acting, then I would have had a different, very, very different outcome.
0: Absolutely. And again, I mean, we're full of shout-outs today, but we need to give love to teachers um, because this is an incredibly difficult time for all of them, and I'm sure, sadly, a few of them might leave the profession this year. Uh, but good teachers change lives, and that's the reality. They they have a huge effect. You know, I've, I've got four or five that I think about very often. Um, and I honestly, I don't think they're paid enough, frankly, oh, <laughs> uh, for the job for the job that they do, for the stress they take on. And you know, you talk about patients, you know, bringing in Doctor Google. I've heard stories of you know like parents you know, suggesting God knows what i like you know gone midnight emails and you know about homeschooling and yeah it, it just feels incredibly stressful
1: yeah absolutely and and yeah massive massive props to teachers i think they do an incredible job for for very little thanks whether it be monetary or 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 thank you from parents often i think um I yeah. think they're just taken for granted a lot and particularly by the government um so yeah i i i I will uh, happily happily sit here and, and shout from the rooftops for them.
0: Absolutely. Let's talk about um, the most surprising thing that you come across as a vet. Um, you know that uh, uh, a patient may have uh, may have brought to you. <laughs>
1: uh, you know what? There's there's some there's some good stories out there. I, I think the the the, the funnest bit the funniest bit for me is when you are when you've got a dog, particularly dogs. Eat things because you know what dogs are like. They go and they eat stupid <laughs> yes. things, and yep. then you, as a vet, you see them in you. You do some imaging, and uh, whether it's X-rays or ultrasound, and you go, "Yeah, there is something sat in that dog's stomach. There is something sat in that dog's gastrointestinal tract." And yes. then the next step, and and this is where I'm I'm the surgeon at work. So this is where I get then given the dog, and then they say, "There's something in that dog's stomach. Go find it." So I go in and I cut open, cut the dog open. And I, and I remove whatever said item is. And that item can be hilarious. It can be yeah. surprising. It can be awful. It can be quite, quite disgusting. Um, just <laughs> to list you a few, uh, I've had one particularly raunchy puppy decided that he'd eat his mother's knickers. Um, wow. Yeah, uh, that was a fun one. Um, in fact, one of my colleagues once had a dog... That he removed a pair of knickers from, gave the knickers back to the female owner who had been in a happy marriage for twenty years. Guess who didn't own those knickers? I'm going to assume the husband. Well, yeah, there we go. So yes, they were they were someone else's, and uh, that led to a relatively quick divorce, I'm afraid. Um, so yeah, that was uh, oh. that was a fun one. Oh wow! Uh, I thought yes. you su-
0: I thought you were suggesting that he was he wore female underwear.
1: No, he uh, he had a, a a lady friend who who wasn't his wife, um, and and the, and the wife had been suspicious as it as it turns out, and uh, and then the dog basically helped helped her find out by by going and snuffling her, her the, the lady friend's underwear. So um, wow. all in all, what a great dog! Um, yes, yeah. Yeah, yes, that was that was a fun one. Uh, and then yeah, I've had one where, um, but my, the one that sticks in my memory is where. You know, out the front of when you're watching American uh, TV, and out the front of the car dealerships, they've got those like men that are like the windmen with big white yeah. arms, massive, massive things. Yes, and they like wobble. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. One one Labrador had eaten a very similar toy, and as I cut open open its stomach, this this basically head just popped out of the cut. And just started wobbling in this dog's abdomen, which I, of course, burst out laughing. My nurse burst out laughing, and it was just brilliant. Um, <laughs> uh, but so uh, that that one I'll always remember. But yeah, it it, it can be a fun and varied uh, varied profession, veterinary, and uh, you, you'll ne- you'll never have two days the same.
0: That was a feature of talking to Jonas, the uh, the doctor. I was fortunate enough to talk to a couple of weeks ago. was that for him? He's continually fascinated by uh, the body, and I'm sure you are in this case. I mean the sheer variation reptiles mammals that, that you'll come into contact with and that the two days are never the same it's there's always a different problem to, to solve
1: yeah absolutely it's one of the beauties in my job and probably the, the the best thing about my job is the, is the variation i can go from i can go from doing uh as you say seeing reptiles and doing surgery on them one day and then i can spend the day vaccinating kittens the next and then sometimes i'm doing charity work and sometimes i'm seeing birds and all sorts of different species. So yeah, it's, it's really, really
0: wonderful. Mm. I don't know if this is a thing, um, outside Britain. It certainly, certainly is huge, but, um, lockdown puppies are pretty popular. Yes. I thought this might be a contentious issue. So I'm assuming you're rushed off your feet with this now. I mean, the, the amount of people I see in parks who, a, they, they don't know how to control a puppy. And of course there's not puppy training going on. Um, But people who you'd never have thought would get a dog are getting a dog it's it's crazy
1: yeah there's a lot of people out there that shouldn't be owning animals owning dogs unfortunately um not because they're nasty people not because they they're they're harming their dog just because they have Mm. absolutely no clue how to look after them um yeah it's become a thing right it's in the last 12 months the statistic is one in four people got a new pet in the last year Wow. Um, and, and the majority of those were the dogs or, dogs or cats um and yeah lockdown puppies so unfortunately as, as lovely as it is seeing lots of very cute very sweet gorgeous little puppies there are a lot of negatives that have come with it so just to rifle them off nice and quickly because honestly we could do a whole podcast about this um <laughs> there number one the demand has meant that prices have gone through the roof so people are paying thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds for dogs um dogs uh, sort of for example labrador puppies on average used to cost around sort of six to six to eight hundred quid probably Mm. somewhere in that region i've i've had people paying two three four thousand pounds for them um during lockdown which is just insanity um which which you can kind of understand breeders doing it because if they can, why not? But at the same time, it, it, in my view, it's irresponsible and unethical and, and profiteering from the, from the pandemic, unfortunately. What that's also doing is it's driving breeders and, and people to breed their dogs where they shouldn't. So either dogs that have never been bred or people that have never bred dogs just giving it a go because they can make 20 grand out of a litter. Um, or breeders breeding their dogs more than once a year, which is, again, is, is, is not great for the animal's welfare. Yeah. um so problems with that then you've got people that aren't bre- aren't breeders breeding dogs which leads to things like puppies being given away too early puppies not being looked after properly in their first 10 weeks not getting yeah. vaccinations not getting microchips the mum's getting on well um and so all those sorts of things are, are obviously big welfare concerns and big issues in the veterinary sector and then because these puppies are worth so much We've seen a huge increase in in, in dog thefts. So um, I think Watchdog were reporting a 150% increase in reports of dog thefts in the last 12 months, which is absolute insanity. Because it's essentially walking around with a three or four thousand pound commodity, sort of going to the shops with it, and and all it takes is an unsavoury character to go and, and nick it, and and they can either breed it or they can go and sell it on for a massive, massive financial gain. So we're seeing some real issues, unfortunately.
0: That's that's heartbreaking. Mean, I didn't realise. How extensive it is in terms of, you know, the overbreeding and 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 how you can compromise the mother's health there. My mum got a puppy. She we've had dogs uh, my entire life, so um, yeah, the house has always got a dog in. I, I can assure you, she's not um, just born <laughs> out of uh, out of a boredom. But she was, I thought she was being incredibly irrational because I mean, she was she was worried about uh, uh, our puppy. Uh, being stolen and and put in for dog fights you know like the, the way they warm up dogs um you know the, the big fighting dogs um but uh i hadn't considered just how expensive they are and how um profitable it would be just to to sell on a, a four grand puppy
1: yeah absolutely it's it's crazy and that's that's only the problem of the breeding then you've got then you've got things like separation anxiety and behavioral issues and people not training their dogs and and as you say, there's no, there's no trainers out there or behaviorists out there doing their work. So we've got these puppies running riots and, and you and me are both London and, and um, <laughs> you see them a mile off just owners screaming at the top of their lungs trying to get their puppy to come back. And it just doesn't happen. So, yeah, it's um, it's it's an interesting time for dogs. Lockdown puppies is, is, is going to be talked about for a while.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's another reason why we're all praying lockdown passes uh, and people come to their senses a little bit or at least get them into some puppy schooling and and train them up a little bit you know because it is just um uh, ignorance you know you, you you do need help um if if you've never trained a dog before
1: absolutely i mean i've i've just i've just got my first puppy of, of my own and as i say we've had dogs in the family all year all my life but me and my uh, my other half have just got our first puppy and even me who works with dogs all day every day um Blooming hard work, Jeez, she, is, she is a nightmare sometimes. She's great and I love her for it, but blooming neck. Toilet training and, and recall and all that sort of stuff, it is, it is tough.
0: It is, for sure, and it varies from breed to breed as well.
1: Absolutely, never, never be afraid to ask for help with a dog. It, it, you, if you don't, you'll probably end up with, a, with an issue later down the line.
0: Absolutely, well, that is the perfect note to end on. New life, um, new puppy, exciting. Um, thank you so much Rory for um for coming on. It was it was it was wonderful.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been really good to talk.
0: You've been listening to Words Found Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia with me, Jubunk McGowan. My guest today was the vet, Rory Cowden. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund. There are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. And please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. And if you really enjoyed this podcast, please go rate, subscribe, and even leave us a little review. Thank you.